are live from the empire of lies, the central point in the fight for freedom and truth. This is a story, the show that brings you the story, the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is the backstory. Hey, Rod, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Great show today, by the way, and a couple of great clips to play for you, and some big stories that you're really not going to hear covered anywhere else, although slightly. Did you see what the New York Times said today, Rod? No, I didn't see what the New York Times said today. Okay, so the New York Times, and that's significant because that is an establishing newspaper. Agreed? Yeah, of course. So they said the U.S. government admitted, is admitting that the Ukrainian government was behind the assassination of Daria Dugina. Did you see that story? No, I hadn't seen that, so this is the first time I'm hearing that. So think about that, Rod. The U.S. government, and it's in the New York Times, you can't get more establishment than that, says that Ukraine is behind the assassination of the 29-year-old daughter of Russian intellectual Alexander Dugan, admitting that. I think that's the biggest story today, with deference to all the people in Florida who are suffering. And Rod, do you, do you see why I'm saying that's such a big story? Yeah, just for how bold they are admitting to, admitting to that, yeah. Yes, and and it also shows somewhat of a split between the U.S. and Ukraine. They talked about this. They said the U.S. is saying they were not involved in any way, and they don't like the fact that Ukraine did this. And do you know why they don't like the fact that Ukraine did it? Uh, the publicity? Yeah, yeah, aside from being evil, it's incredibly stupid. How could Ukraine think that Russia would not respond? And what does this give kind of Russia permission to do? Think about it. Think about it, Rod. Can Russia assassinate people? Well, they can assassinate Ukrainian officials, apparently. That's the rule that's been set down. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Right, yeah, exactly. And they said this is a bad move because it gives Russia basically permission to do the same thing. So that, I think, is one of the biggest stories. And it shows that not just uh, the U.S. government is disturbed by what Ukraine did, but the, the it, establishment, which the New York Times represents, is disturbed by it. Did you see my point there, Rod? Yeah, yeah, I see that. So I think this is very, very big news. Very, very big news. If this had been reported on, let's say, Sputnik or RT, based on a Russian report, it would be equally true, but not as significant. This coming out from this media source at this time and from this government, also, I think, for anyone who would defend this regime, this is a regime that has not just killed Dario Dugina, but has been bombing people for eight years. You should really think, if you bought into any part of the government's narrative 
on Ukraine, you should question that. And we have great guests today, too, Rod, so I should get to that. But that's such a big story. I thought I'd mention it up front because it's really big news. Freed? No, I definitely agree with that. So our first guest in just a few minutes is our friend, the great activist and journalist, Taylor Hudak, who you told me now lives in Hungary, right? She lives in Budapest. That's correct. I'll talk to Taylor about that because I'm interested in her experience there. And I'll be curious in talking to Taylor Hudak about that, among other things, including the latest activism work on Assange, Julian Assange, that's coming in October. Then in the second hour is our good friend, entrepreneur, economist, and prog rock drummer, could be none other than the great Mark Frost in the second hour. And we're taking your calls, all show, 202-521-1320, on. Rod, please do the honors and take us out by saying the name of the show and making in some great sound effects, Nirvana, a boom happened. Go ahead, Rod. See what you're happens. Listening the, you're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. See, I don't know where the sound comes from, actually, in real life. I mean, I know it comes from a, a device and hits a button, but where do you ever hear that sound in real life, Rod? I'll ask you. Do you ever hear a boom like that in nature? No. And we'll get to calls real quickly since our friend Tarif is called. 202-521-1320. Tarif, do you have a message about Julian Assange for Taylor Hudak? I got to ask. Okay. Here's the play for Biden. Since the neocons basically got his back against the wall, because I feel to believe the neocons carried out the operation in that bulk of suit to destroy the North Stream pipeline. But, 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 Tarif. I seldom have to stop you and say to you, you did not say something in support of Julian Assange. So do that first. It's tradition here on the backstory. Go ahead, Drew. Yeah. Okay. Free Julian Assange. But but I was going to leave. Yes. All right. Thank you. Go ahead. You got to do. Oh, okay. Okay. This was Biden got to do, right? To get the neocons back. For having his back against the wall, you got to let Julian Sines go. You have to do it, because we all know Julian Sines is one of the best journalists out there, right? He's going to get the information to go to war with these people, um, or, or with dealing with articles and things of that nature. Now, I got two comments. First comment is this. But but uh, let's be, be, be. No one has uh, Biden's back against the wall, not the neocons. That's like saying my girlfriend, Danny, had my back against the wall and forced me to buy pants today. No, I asked her to take me to the store. Biden is voluntarily with the neocons. He loves having Victoria Newland, arch neocon, in his administration. So Biden's not being put up to anything. Does it make sense, Shreve? Yeah, I understand. But I was just throwing, that was just my uh, political opinion, things of that nature. Well, but uh, let, me, let me get to these two comments right quickly, if you don't mind. First comment is this. Saudi Arabia and Russia agreed upon 
Not 100,000 barrels a day of oil that's going to be cut. Not a million, but two million barrels of oil are going to start being cut by November. My second comment is... That's, that's right. Good point. And we're going to bring that up. Two million barrels a day. And the Saudis saying they're cutting oil production is also a diss, if I may use the words the kid used in the 90s. But it's a diss to Joe Biden because Biden had flown over there and specifically asked him to increase oil production. So do you agree with that, Tarif, that this is a diss yes. to the Biden administration? Yes, it's a diss. If they do it like November the 1st, that, that's going to really hurt the Democrats. And also, guess what, Lee, in Iran, come to find out today, they did a specials on North Korea pipeline. They only found uh, like a few puncher holes in it. It was built so well that it it's, it's, it, it was still it stood the, the explosions. And now the Russians are telling the Germans, "Hey, let's go back in the note, uh, at the um, the table again." So we're gonna start pipe. They're gonna they're gonna try to start piping natural gas to them again because it's an easy fix. So whoever done that, it didn't work. And that's great news. And Tarif. Taylor Hudak is on the phone, so we got to go. But you want to say one more free Julian Assange for us? Free Julian Assange. There you go. Keep it going, Tarif. Thank you very much. Great call as usual. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by none other than the great Taylor Hudak, activist and journalist from her new home in Hungary, coming right up after this break on the backstory. We're back on the backstory and on the radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C. 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joined now from Budapest, Hungary, by a great friend of the show, the great journalist and actress, Taylor Hudak. Hey, Taylor, how you doing? Hey, Lee, I'm doing well. It's great to be here. Well, so it's great to have you, as always. And you've been in Hungary with us before, but I recently found out that you've moved there. Is that true? Or is Rod lying yes. to me? No, Rod is not lying to you. He's exactly right. I am living now in Hungary. I am actually a Hungarian citizen, which is so exciting. I am a dual American-Hungarian citizen, and so that's where I'm living, and I'm very lucky that I get to enjoy the perks of Russian gas, <laughs> unlike other parts of Europe. Well, now, so let me ask a dumb question, showing how dumb I am. Is Hudak... A Hungarian name? Look, not a dumb question at all. I'm often asked, you know, the ethnicity and origin of my last name. But yes, it is a Hungarian last name. In fact, it's pretty common throughout much of Eastern Europe as well. So it's, in fact, a very common last name, but it is of Hungarian and Eastern European origin. And did how did you get dual citizenship? Was that a so, factor? It was. I was very lucky that Hungary allows for people to acquire citizenship if their ancestors were Hungarian citizens. So, in fact, 
legally, I never applied for Hungarian citizenship. What I did was I registered myself as a Hungarian citizen who was born abroad. So that's the legal standing. And this is something that Hungary allows for people to do, I think, because they want to preserve the Hungarian language. Now, I do, do not know the language, but the goal is to have more people in Hungary and more Hungarians because, of course, it is a very small ethnic group of people. And so there's efforts to preserve that. And you see it also with the policies taken by the government to a degree where there's really an interest in the Hungarian people. Now, this will sound dumb if people don't know geography, but it's actually a, a smart comment on my part. And you'll get it. Are you in Buda or Pest? Now, that sounds like a dumb joke because a lot of people don't know that Buddha and Pesh are separate parts, right? Right, Taylor? Yes, you're exactly right. I mentioned this, I think, last time on the program. So uh, Budapest is, of course, the capital of Hungary, and it is a city that is split by the Danube River. So there's the Buddha side, and then there's the Pesh side. I'm on the Buddhist side, although... Uh, spend time on both. Uh, the Buddhist side is a little bit more quiet, whereas the Pest side has more things going on um, for younger people. I would, you know, say it's probably more likely to be on, on the Pest side where more things are taking place, whereas there's more like governmental buildings on the Buddhist side. Now, have you been down by the river there and where it overlooks across the river, the big government building? In, in in Hungary. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, yes. It, there's a gorgeous parliament building that's on the Danube exactly River. Right. It's lit up every evening, yes. And have you been it's down there to look at it from across the river? Oh, yes, of course. It's gorgeous, yes. right? It really is, and it's a big tourist destination as well. I mean, throughout the summer, there were so many people here traveling, visiting, to see this this landmark and also just that area in Budapest is just very pretty in general. There's there's a lot to do, a lot to see, but the Parliament Building certainly is one of the most notable. Yeah, I, I went down to across the Danube from the Parliament Building to see it. I believe at sunset and sunrise, and it's a gorgeous building. I didn't get to any of the ancient historical sites when I was in Hungary. Have you done? The historical stuff? Honestly, not too much. Not too much. I still have a lot to, to see here, I would say. But I am very lucky. I, I am in a, a beautiful city, and it's very different than what I'm used to compared to the United States, of course. It's very different. But, um, yes, there's so much to see here and a lot more to explore. Now, what do you think of Viktor Orban, the leader of Hungary? What, what are your feelings about him? I'm asking that first. We'll get your opinions in a second. But I want to get a sense of what you feel about him, because a lot of people seem to go by their feelings about Orban. And uh, do, do you know what I'm getting at, Taylor? I do, yes. So it as I was suggesting a little bit earlier, I think if you look at the policies taken by Hungary very recently in regard to uh, the conflict in Ukraine, Hungary has, for the most part, made an effort to put the Hungarian people first. And just recently, I learned earlier today, right before I joined the program, is that Hungary has been excluded and has been able to be exempted from multiple new European Union energy sanctions on Russia. 
Uh, Hungary yes. has chosen not to sanction Russia to, to the degree that the EU has. Of course, Hungary is a part of the EU and also a NATO country. So right now, I think that Orban and his government is really trying to balance its EU and NATO membership with the national interest. And so as a result of that, Orban has been attacked by many pro-EU, pro-NATO leaders and officials. But really, the goal here, I think, is to put the Hungarian people first. And I think that's a great policy. I, I'm happy that this country has not taken, um, has not really involved itself in this conflict and that Hungary has not allowed for, say, for example, weapons to be shipped to Russia through Hungary. I think that's a, a good policy and it's putting the people first. Now, it is a country that has taken in many Ukrainian refugees. So there is uh, that aspect to Indeed, it. Yeah. But I would say that Orban is generally well-liked in Hungary. Again, it's a little bit difficult for me to say because I am not very skilled in the Hungarian language. It is a very difficult language. So it's a little bit harder for me to fully understand people's perspective on Orban. But I think that generally he's very well-liked here. But around the world, you see he gets called a, basically a right-wing nut all the time. And we established on the show yesterday what right-wing means when most of the press uses it. It's essentially like saying he's a big poopy pants, right? They, they, all they mean by right-wing is this is a person we don't like. And what it seems to me, if I go by the people who they call right wing, it seems to be people who are in favor of their own country's sovereignty. Do you get, see what I'm getting at, Taylor? Yes, I do. I, I think the word fascist is also leveled against people who also put the country's interest um, at the forefront. So I, I definitely see your point there in, in what you're saying. I think that it's interesting to see a lot of EU parliamentarians be very critical of, of Hungary and other countries that have taken similar stances when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine, because I'm seeing a lot of really outlandish depic depictions of Hungary. And I'm living here as a Hungarian citizen, and it does not match at all with what my experience yes. is here. I mean, there's claims that it's a dictatorship, which is just so absolutely ridiculous. And it's interesting to see this, of course, coming from uh, people in positions of power who think they understand a country when they truly don't. So it's been very interesting for me to see that big difference in how it's portrayed and what's actually happening. And when I visited Hungary, I was struck by the fact that unlike American cities, you know, an American city may have one World War II memorial and no one goes there over on the side of town. But I was struck by in Budapest, World War II history and what they suffered from the Soviets and the Nazis is very much a living thing. Have you noticed that around Budapest, that World War II history is very much alive in a way it's not in the U.S.? Do you know what I mean, Taylor? So one thing, you know, to, to reflect back on history, one point that I find very interesting, especially when it comes to the current conflict with Ukraine, is that, you know, after World War One, the British redrew the borders throughout Europe, leaving many ethnic groups on the wrong side of the border. This, of course, creates an environment in which conflict and war can be easily provoked. 
And we're seeing the same thing, of course, happening with Ukraine, an artificial state that was created. And it allows for a, you know, a situation in which conflict can be easily uh, provoked. So I think maybe it speaks to this, this region in the world that has been really um, not only victimized by Britain, of course, as I mentioned, but also the United States. Well, also because in the center of town, the House of Horrors, you go by, I'm sure it's right in the center of town. But the House of Horrors is where Hungarians were tortured by the Soviets and by the Nazis during World War II. Right, Taylor? So I'm not too familiar with this uh, piece of, or this landmark that you're referring to, but um, I would have to look into it further. So yeah, if you look into it, you'll see it's a it's a it's a pretty big tourist attraction actually, and you know th think about that the place that was used to torture people is now a place that tourists visit and reflect back on uh, World War II history. So I think Hung Hungary is going to see the idea that Ukrainians had Nazis, actual Nazis, very different. A lot of the U.S. think that concept is absurd because World War II to them is something in a Spielberg movie or maybe a Tarantino movie or maybe Hogan's Heroes. We don't really think of World War II as a real thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Of course, because we didn't, the United States did not feel the effects of World War II to the extent and in the same way that Europe did, of course. And I think it's really important to point out in the aftermath as well, uh, Germany uh, had suffered quite a bit. Um, it, yes. Again, I was speaking about borders that had been uh, redrawn. And I mean, you know, Czechoslovakia was created and you had 5 million ethnic Germans who were on the wrong side of the border. They were in the newly formed uh, Czechoslovakia, who then had to be transported to a, a different region within Germany because their land was was taken from them. So horrible impacts that have happened as a result of these wars over over the years. And in particular, Europe has really suffered in a way that I think the United States has not. That is not to say that Americans have not suffered as a result of these wars, but it's a very different way, I think, when we're talking about Europe. And you see the impacts as well. No, that's right. And it, it is, all I'm saying is, is just different. It's yeah. not once better than the other, but you should be aware of that other countries, and this includes the Russians. For instance, the Russians, World War II history is very real because from what I understand Russia, everyone has a relative who lost someone in World War II. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. And, you know, to this uh, day as well, I mentioned uh, Germany earlier. We still see the um, attack on Germany and efforts to destroy Germany, who I think I think it is a country that has the strongest or the largest economy in Europe. That's mainly because it is a country that has many small banks, which lend to small to medium enterprises and small businesses. And that's what allows for countries to really thrive versus a very centralized system that does not allow for countries to thrive. So it seems that there has been an attack uh, 
in an effort to destabilize Germany further. And one thing that people don't know still is that Germany is still occupied by the United States. It is still under occupation status. And so that also, I think, you know, plays a role, especially if we look at the leadership <laughs> that, that we see in Germany right now. It's just outrageous. Some of the things that are said, I believe it was um, Baerbach, it openly admitted that the interests of Ukrainians will come before the interests of the German people. And this was a few weeks ago. I'm sure you discussed it on your program. But I mean, this is just outrageous. Now, uh, and some of this real World War II history is in the headlines currently. Recently, Germany rejected. Poland was asking for reparations after World War II. And recently, a few days ago, uh, Germany rejected Poland's bid for reparations. Had you seen that? Yes, I did. A little bit on this, yes. And so I'm just saying, it's this is real history. It's mm-hmm. not going on in the past. It's going on right now as Poland was trying to get reparations. Now, uh, the other thing that Orban did that I like a lot is he smartly got George Soros out of the country organizationally a a couple of decades ago. Even though Soros is from Budapest and and was in there, like Russia, and I've thought this, Taylor, there's two countries, Russia and and Hungary, that kicked out George Soros a couple of decades ago. And those two countries, I noticed one thing, their leaders are popular. I think when George Soros comes into a country, he makes the leaders, whoever they are, less popular with the people. So do you know much about the history of Soros and uh, Hungary? So it's very interesting that you bring up this point because you're exactly right in saying that George Soros is not well liked uh, by the Hungarians or the Hungarian government. In fact, a few, um, I was not here several years ago, but I was speaking to a few people who said it was very common to see um, political ads or or just uh, various billboards that were very critical of George, yeah, very critical of George Soros. And in fact, just today I saw um, an an ad and it was about George Soros. It was all in Hungarian. I couldn't understand what it was, but I assume by the tone that it was very critical. So um, you have a, a really good point that, yes, um, George Soros is not well-liked by the Hungarians. He is originally from Hungary. Now, as far as the, the history there, I'm not too uh, familiar with it, but you're correct in, in, in what you say, that he is not a well-liked by, by any means. I was in heaven in Hungary. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm shallow. I'm a shallow American me, but whatever. But great hamburgers— and anti-Soros posters, you know, and of course, beautiful Hungarian women everywhere. That didn't hurt. But uh, Hungary, I loved seeing the anti-Soros posters. Uh-huh. I got my photo taken with them. I was excited about that. Cause <laughs> I bet. Soros I mean, it's is, a, yeah. Yeah, because he's one place. of the big enemies. And uh, and a lot of people, I, I always bring up Hungary, I think it's a possibility they could break from the EU. Have you heard anything that would lead you to think that there might be a break coming from the EU, possibly, maybe, 
from Hungary. Yes, I've wondered about this myself. In fact, um, initially when the back in February of 2022, so earlier this year, at the start of the conflict in Ukraine, I, I saw the policies that were being taken by Hungary that, of course, uh, went against the EU. And I thought this could be the beginning of maybe sort of a an end to this membership within the EU. And in fact, there is now, I think, some some merit to to speculate that this really could happen because it wasn't too long ago, maybe about a month ago, where Orban spoke about the possibility of leaving the EU by 2030. So I don't think that the EU would necessarily kick out Hungary, but I think it's more likely that Hungary could potentially leave over time. But this was mentioned by Orban. Of course, Hungary has been criticized by many EU parliamentarians recently. They even went on to, they had a vote where Hungary was deemed an, an autocracy or a dictatorship, but it was no longer uh, meant to be considered a democracy, which again, this is just so ridiculous. It's just propaganda um, to, to um, penalize a country for, for not falling in line with the EU. But um, I, I see some differences in, in policies and overall goals. So I think it is quite possible that it could happen in the future. We'll have yet to see. Yeah, I, think I, think it's, I think it's more possible now because the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is becoming a viable alternative, a, a very strong organization. So now that Hungary potentially has someplace else to go, does that make sense, Taylor? It does, yes. I think that, again, I mentioned earlier to, in this call that there were developments that Hungary is exempt from from certain sanctions on Russia. So it seems almost as if the EU has sort of uh, gave in a little bit. I have yet to really research this extensively. I saw it right before I came on. But um, I, I think that Hungary really doesn't even need the EU, really. It, it doesn't. Hungary would be fine, I think, without it. But I think if that does happen, I think we can expect that to happen in the future. One of the great things about this country, too, is that it's on its own currency. It's on the forint. It's not on the euro. Yes. That's great. I hope to see Hungary continue to um, have its own currency, the forint. The forint is not doing too well right now. But I still think countries do better on their own currencies, speaking their own language and being sovereign. And, and not yes. maybe maybe not being a part of the EU, truly, and definitely not being a part of NATO. Yes, that's right. Now, let's talk about Assange. First off, talk about the event that's coming up in just a few days in Washington. Do you know much about that? You're not close yes, to it. Yes, I but do. Yeah, yes, so there too. is. Yes, so October 8th, there is going to be global actions taking place. Again, that is this Saturday, October 8th. For the American listeners who are in the United States, there is a protest or demonstration that'll take place at the U.S. Department of Justice in D.C. from 12 to 3 p.m. And this is, again, to raise awareness to prevent the extradition of Julian Assange from the U.K. to the U.S., and then in London on the same day, Saturday, October 8th at 1 p.m., 
Protesters, demonstrators will create a human chain around the Houses of Parliament in London. Thousands of people have already pledged to come to the UK Parliament building and join hands to show their support for Assange and to advocate for his freedom. So I know those are the two major events on that day. Again, for the U.S. listeners, that is Saturday, October 8th at the U.S. Department of Justice in D.C. from 12 to 3 p.m., and there are many other events, I think, taking place in different countries throughout the world. But again, this is a, a critical time in this case. I know I've said that numerous times on this program, but each day it feels as if extradition is becoming more and more of a possibility. But we need to remember that there still is an opportunity to prevent the extradition. As of right now, the case Assange's legal team has filed its perfected grounds of appeal to the UK High Court, and now it is left to UK High Court judges to decide whether or not they will hear this appeal in the court. So there still is an opportunity to prevent this extradition. And I think that if you look at the courts, they really don't like to rule outside of the court of public opinion. They tend to want to be seen in, be seen well with the court of public opinion. Generally, again, I'm speaking in very general terms here, but that's why protesting peacefully and demonstrating, calling representatives, calling your local representatives, parliamentarians, calling the White House, doing what you can to ensure that this extradition doesn't go ahead because it does impact everyone. So it's not just about journalists. It's not just about activists, and it's not just about Julian Assange himself. Of course, that's a big part of it, and he is suffering greatly, and he needs to be freed as soon as possible. But this is about everybody's right to know and right to have access to information. And so I encourage everybody, if they can, to attend these events, show up. If anything, it gives you a really good feeling at the end of the day because you did something, you stood up for what was right, and then also you can meet like-minded people. I mean we're in such a polarized world today where it's hard to find people that really share your same worldview. And so by going to events like this, you really have an opportunity to meet people who share your same viewpoints. And it, I've, I've seen a lot of people really find joy in that. Now, what, what I found among, I'll call it the Assange community, they have a variety of viewpoints politically, but the thing that binds them is they believe in one, the truth, two, truthful journalism, and three, they're anti-war. So whatever, they may be libertarian, they may be a... Hey, Taylor, uh, so we had little technical difficulties with, uh, with Lee there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, so uh, so we were just uh, talking about um, meeting like-minded people at... Uh, at Julian Assange events, which, like yeah. you were saying, it's hard to it's hard to find like-minded people nowadays. So just, we're still, but on hello, yeah. So, so we still got yeah. I'm still here. It's just Lee's like breaking in and out technically. But anyway, but um, I definitely agree with that, uh, Taylor. And uh, can you expand on? Uh, have you met like-minded people uh, in uh, in Hungary as far as? Uh, am I am I back on, Rod? Uh, yeah. Okay, we can hear you. Am Lee. I on? Okay, let me try now. I was saying the thing I think binds to people, they may be of different ideologies. You may find someone who's a communist and someone who's a libertarian. But the thing that I think binds them is they're pro-truth, pro-truth in journalism, 
and anti-war. Taylor, do you agree that that's what binds the Julian Assange Freedom Community together? Absolutely. This is a group of people. And if you're listening right now and this appeals to you, I would encourage you to join in on these efforts. If you are someone that cares about human rights, you are against torture and suffering, you are anti-war, you don't like to see conflict and tons of money being spent to, to justify killings. If you are someone that wants access to truthful information, this is a cause that you want to be a part of. You want to advocate for Julian Assange's freedom because, again, as I said, it is about Julian's uh, suffering and everything that he has gone through. But also this is about uh, press freedom, free speech, human rights. And unfortunately, this case, if it is tried in the United States, it could set a really bad precedent where much of the national security journalism would be considered criminal and journalists would not be able to do their jobs as they once were able to. And so that is why this case is so important. And while many people, a part of this movement, as you know, you were saying, Lee, have different political views on, on other topics, this is one thing that really unites people. So I would say put those differences aside. They don't matter. This is a really big cause and we should all be working together because all of us are impacted by this, despite whatever your political leanings are. Amen. And that's what I'm saying. It's a diverse group. But if you like that sort of thing, the diverse on all issues, except you're not going to find war hawks and neocons in the group. Right, Taylor? No, I would say you are not likely to find people who are pro-war among this uh, group of people. I, I would say that you're right in, in saying that. And again, to those interested, attend these events. That is this Saturday, October 8th. Call your representatives. Do what you can. Raise awareness. And also, too, I need to make note of another group of doctors and scientists and other professionals who also have been courageously telling the truth about COVID-19, and that is Doctors for COVID Ethics. I mentioned this group before, but it's worth mentioning it again. So everybody yeah, listening, please, please, please take note of this website. It is doctors, the number four, covidethics.org. It is so important that I'm going to repeat that one more time. That is doctors, the number four, covidethics.org. This is a group of doctors, scientists, and other professionals who are working to educate and warn the public on the dangers of the broader COVID agenda, and in particular, the COVID-19 vaccines. This group of doctors was warning of blood-related risks due to COVID vaccines before media reports of blood clotting led to vaccine suspensions around the world in 2021. So this is a group of professionals who had it right since day one. And they're also just recently published an article about the vascular and organ damage induced by mRNA vaccines. This is a really important article. I encourage everybody to check it out at doctorsforcovidethics.org. And Taylor, let's try to get you on the show soon, if, we, if, if your schedule allows it, to talk only about that issue. No talk oh, about I'd love to. hamburgers in Budapest, I swear <laughs> to God. Although okay, I would love to. I, I really did have... To, you know what they do there? They put pate on the burger. Have you had that? <laughs> no, and I never will. I never will. No. <laughs> it's funny carnivore? you mentioned that. I no. 
A burger, yes, but not pate. No. <laughs> okay, well, don't don't knock it till you try it, because it's really <laughs> okay. good. No, no, I'm with you in theory. I don't like <laughs> the sound of it, but it was del delicious. Taylor Hudak, it's late in Budapest. Have a good night. Thanks very much Thank for you. talking to us. And let's have you back on again soon to talk about the COVID scandal you've been working on as a journalist. And once again, thank you to Taylor Hudak. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with more on The Backstory. back on the backstory and thanks again to taylor hudak great appearance by taylor hey what rod what what say you yeah no it's, it's so much to talk about or uh, so much to talk to with uh talk to about with taylor so it's not enough time so but yeah definitely great to talk to taylor and i really i do like orban which is why i bring him up a bit and it was exciting to be in a place with andy soros billboards how would you feel rod if you could walk into let's say downtown philly and there's a big billboard against Soros. How cool would that be? Uh, you know what I would do? I'll take a picture with it, Lee. <laughs> right. I'll definitely take a picture with it. That's what I did in Hungary. And so I had a great time there. And I'm somewhat envious of her because it's a, quite a nice city. And uh, I'm sure she's going to lo love living there and doing Assange activism and so on. So let's get to phone calls. 202 521-1320 is the number. Ingrid, if in D.C., you're on the air. What's on your mind, Ingrid? Oh, thanks. That was great to hear Taylor plug the D.C. event. Um, as you know, I've been working with D.C. Action for Assange. Certainly, if you live close to here or if you have disposable income, come. But for a number of reasons, I'm not a huge fan of everybody go to one place. And one of the reasons... I said yesterday I was optimistic about the future is we have this digital ability. People can go wherever they are on Saturday with a sign, Save Journalism, Free Assange. They can go to their uh, local district office of their representative. They can go to any public place, take a photo of themselves, put it online, and be part of the community. And following this event Saturday, this is not the end. We're going to be continuing doing speaking engagements, film showings, but we're going to put it where it's going to do the most good. And this is the pivot to Virginia, to the counties in Virginia that are going to be drawing the jury pool for the Eastern District Court of Virginia. So we especially want to make connections out there with people. And the next kind of campaign we're doing is to have people go to the polling places. November 8th is this election coming up. All your neighbors are going to be going out to vote, stand there, and like the electioneers who are holding signs for their candidates, hold up a sign for, for Julian, for First Amendment, for free speech, for journalism, and make this thing self-generating. Yeah, it's great. I've met a lot of people on the street. If you're here, if you're close by, come out and meet people. But there are other ways to do this that are just as important. And that, that's why I mentioned 
the kind of people who are there. Because I'll put it like this. In human behavior, if you're going to get along with people, it's best to focus on things you have in common rather than start with the differences. And at an Assange event, these are people who are anti-war. And they may be anti-war for a different reason than you're anti-war. But I think that's a good place to start. What do we have in common? And you'll find, and I also like that you, that you mentioned, uh, Ingrid, of you didn't use this term, but I will, microactivism, not waiting to get a million people or 100,000 people together. But you're one person. My, my own dumb little way, that's what sitting out in a chair with an impeached Biden sign is it's one person doing one thing that I'm not asking anyone's permission for. I'm just doing something. So you like the idea, right, Ingrid? I love it. It's absolutely perfect. <clears throat> and if, if, if I, I'm, my point is, been doing it, you can do it. You listening can do it. You can get a little sign and you can hold up something, you know, Morrissey, the lead singer from the Smiths, has a song that sums up my view on this. It's Sing Your Life. Step up to the microphone and say the things that you love and the things that you loathe. That's what Morrissey said. So I'm saying go outside with a sign and express your political viewpoints. If you're in favor of freedom of speech, hold up a sign that says that. And it doesn't matter if one person sees it. Our opponents, they deal in mass communications. They deal with mass events. That's what they deal with. We change minds one person at a time. And I think by trying to change people's minds one person at a time will have more effect. What do you think, Ingrid? Yeah, that's probably the only way to do it. A lot of times when people are in groups, they're going to stick with their herd and it's more difficult to even approach them. Yes, and if there's a big event, I'm in favor of that. So I'd go, but I can't count on that any given day in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 100,000 people again together would be kind of weird. So I do what I can. And if you do what you can, not you, Ingrid, you do what you can. You're a great activist. But people out there listening, this is what I'd urge you to do. Find something you can do. Anything else, Ingrid? That's it. Thanks a lot, Lee. Take care. Okay, thanks, Ingrid. Now, I want to play the first clip we have. And this is a clip. Let me go to the bubble and see one second. I'm going to go to the woman one. Now, Rod, you picked this clip, and I thought this was fascinating, about the CDC, right? <clears throat> yeah, I'm not, I forget what organization is women's. It's probably WHO or one of those organizations. Um, and yeah, it just, it just coincides with what we, we've gone through from 20 to <clears throat> March, 2020. And, you know, she, she, she puts it up, she marked, I mean, she phrases it just perfectly to where a lot of people have been played because this is what she says is exactly what people are like, no, that this is not what they're saying. Now imagine if I ask Rod, cause I'll, I'll do it. Rod, do you own the science? No, I have no ownership of science. Right. 
And it's a bizarre question to ask, right? Very, very. Right, but you'll I own, hear my, man, I own my I own my manhood. That's about it. But you know that is you right. want to, scientifically, if you want to talk. No, and and you'll see why I say that, because do you own the science? You you listening? Call us two zero two five two one thirteen twenty. If you own the science, let's play the clip. This woman from the WHO, we believe, hit it. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. Uh, poor baby. You didn't like your Google results. Oh, oh, I'm so sad. You want to you get some distorted results. Try typing in, remember this phrase, Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin into Google. If you want to see some distorted results. Rod, have you ever typed in Donald Trump into Google? Did you find any distorted results? Did you cry about it because you owns the Trump knowledge? <laughs> um, no, Lee. I mean, yeah, I have looked up Donald Trump, and you would think he's the biggest cr criminal if you just type his name into Google. It'll take a couple pages before you uh, find any positive uh, articles. Same thing with Vladimir Putin. He's uh, he's Hitler on steroids all over the globe. So, um, so yeah. Even though the UN. The, the New York Times, forgive me, the New York Times is admitting today that the government of Ukraine, remember them, the good guys, I'm going to say this because I'm really pissed off about it. It's disgusting to me. We have given how many billions of dollars to this government who assassinated a 29-year-old woman? Yeah, I think I think we're like at 20, right? Twelve Between 12 to 20, something like that. We and, paid uh, them billions of dollars billions with a B. That's a bigger one. And they assassinated. And the New York Times and the U.S. government admits this. They killed an innocent person of no military value. And they have a kill list. When's the New York Times? I'm going to say this. You cowards of the New York Times. It's, I think, time for you to start talking about the kill list. Do you agree, Rod? Oh, oh come on, Lee. It's, it's way overdue. I mean... Uh, with, you know, I would say what took you so long, you know what I mean? Uh, that was what I would say. Um, and I don't think, I don't think they will. I really don't think, I think, I think it'll be years from now, Lee, that they'll ever really touch it. And, and apparently not Roger Water fans because Roger Waters is on the kill list. The kill list, the, I, I bring up Roger Waters, not just because I'm a Floyd fan, but because clearly he has no military value at all. We'll take a short break now. When we come back, we'll talk about that and other issues here on The Backstory.
Backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. Once again, thanks to Taylor Hudak for great appearance. We learned a lot about Hungary. And I think Hungary is going to be an important country going forward in the future because I really do think that the EU is about... The EU, people who are in the EU are realizing being a member of the EU is not a suicide pact. You don't have to freeze to death for Europe. You don't have to. So thanks to Taylor Hudak. Coming up this hour, our friend Mark Frost rock rock drummer, economist, libertarian, the great Mark Frost. And I want to talk to him about whether, how prog rock is Pink Floyd. Because I know it's a weird question. In one sense, they're one of the founders of prog rock. But I find they, they almost aren't a prog rock band. And I'll talk about it with Mark if that makes sense. But we're also taking your calls, 202-521-1320 on Backstory. Okay, so it's always rock talk, but I don't expect our next caller has much to say. I'm going to ask him, Al Killer, are you a Floyd fan? I'll ask him that question. We'll start easy. So, Al Killer, are you a Pink Floyd fan? A fan of band Pink Floyd? Al Killer, go ahead. Oh, that- that's a little before my time, and now I'm like a 90s hip-hop, like lyrical hip-hop. That's what I like. I've grown to like some like country music, some rock and roll music, but Pink Floyd, nah, that's druggy music to me. I, I just can't get like I, I can't get the acid stuff like out of my out of my head when I think about them. The what? They just remind me of like acid tripping hippies. I, I just can't get that. That's maybe I'm generalizing them, but that that's just what their music. But I do I do like their main. I do like what. Um, forgive me for uh, not knowing his name off the top of my head. I I do like their what their Roger Waters. Yeah, I, I do respect him, and I do like what he's saying. Okay, I'll cover. But you did not call to talk about seventies progressive rock. I'm assuming. What's on your mind, I'll cover. All right, so, you know, Dove, your original guest that you had on today, you know, she was Taylor. bringing up, yes, she was bringing up Germany, and, you know, Gerald Salenti, um, the trends forecaster, trends in the news, that was my experience going through Germany. Same thing he said, where he said that he showed, he was going to leave the United States, he was going to go to uh, Chile, he was trying to get away, this, like, 2012 time frame, and... He, when he went to Germany, he saw, he, w- he was in Berlin, and he saw, and this is, will be your experience in Germany, you'll see buildings that are hundreds of years old, and you're like, my God, how could a human build these? And then you see, you see new construction, and he said it was like bookends. And what he realized was, how could the Germans, Bach, Beethoven, you know, people, like smart people, how could they let a freak like Hitler destroy their country? And he realized that he couldn't run away. And he ended up buying four the in Kingston, New York. He bought four of the pre-revolutionary buildings, stone buildings on the four corners of freedom. And Judge Napolitano has been up there several times. Scott Ritter, um, normal guests that you, you've had on have, have 
been up there to visit him for his anti-war uh, Occupy Peace stuff. I, 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 unfortunately, with Hungary, the, Hungary is going to get the Russian treatment in Europe. They're going to make Viktor Orban's life miserable. Um, his best bet that he has his own currency is because you see how he is, they make him take the migrants from the problems that the EU causes. You bomb Libya, you bomb Syria, you get an influx of migrants, you cause a war between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and they have to take care of, they're, they're basically there to mop up the, the problems that are created. Um, but they, at the end of the day, and this is where me and Brave and Carmine, we're all on the same page. They don't care what we think or what we know. They, they're just going to march forward. They're going to make Italy's life absolute hell. They're going to make Sweden's life absolute hell. And you played a clip of the woman for the, for, um, for the United Nations saying they own the science. And when I was saying two years ago how the entire world is following this great reset um, World Economic Forum plan, they even war games a a novel coronavirus outbreak. You can you can go ahead and look up Event Two Hundred One, and it will take you to Bill Gates, John Hopkins, and uh, World Economic Forum website. And they said exactly what they were going to do. They even ran on the Spars uh, twenty twenty five twenty twenty eight document, which was another drill that General Flynn talked about on Alex Jones. They word for word typed out people's tweets and how they would respond to them, and they responded word for word. So they are doing what they want, and at the end of the day, money, power, and respect. It's, it's the money, the, it's the bankers, that gives them the power. So, so while I agree with you, Al Keller, they're doing what they want to do. What are you doing? Are you doing what you want to do? I am doing what I want to do, but I'm just... Uh, I- Therefore, what, what I'm saying is, hold on, what I'm saying is, Everyone listening has the ability to do what they want to do. And what you can control is what you're going to do. So you're stating that the globalists are going to lie, for instance. Okay, that's true. Now what are you going to do about it? What I'm I'm saying is, look, look, Lee, as you think that I just talked to you on the the radio, I, we're 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 letting the we're letting what's going being known. We're telling everybody in every facet of and any type of career somebody could have. People are being informed. Now, the thing is, though, if we as as if we as the people that know what's going on can't admit how bad it is and what their goals are. No, who, who's not admitting how bad it is? See, this is where you're jumping. You're acting as though I don't talk about this stuff every freaking day of my life for two hours a day and haven't been talking about it for years. I obviously know how bad it is. What I'm saying is what you're going to do about it is not determined by other people. I can still do something about it. I can still get on the radio, and you're doing it by calling in. And obviously, I'm not criticizing you personally, because obviously your opinion is one that's shared by a lot of people. But I'm going to say, in general, my attitude is don't let let the bastards get you down. And stating that 
They're going to lie. It's true. But I've never, owl killer, I'm not a Pollyanna. I think I state as plainly as possible, things are bad. But as bad as things are, I see a glimmer of hope in that. And for myself, I'm not restricted. I'm going to go out front and lift up my impeach Biden sign and assume it makes some small bit of difference. Does that make sense, Al Keller? Yes, definitely. And um, I'm sure you saw the Tucker Carlson interview with Bob Linsky yesterday. My God, well, I think what Tucker's doing is... Okay, okay. Al Keller, uh, the only reason I'm stopping you is we, in fact, have that clip. So, Al Keller, I'm going to give you the honor. Introduce by saying, hit it. The Tony Bolinski on Tucker Carlson, because this is amazing. Al Killer, do the honors. You better hit it. Um, the magnitude, you know, Hunter in his own uh, words talks about being in business with the spy chief of China. Did you ever talk to Hunter Biden directly about this? Obviously, I was aware of what was being done in 2015 and 2016. Um, by James Gillier and Rob Walker with the Chinese company CFC while Joe Biden was still the sitting vice president of the United States. Um, there was a text message where I was early on having uh, discussions with Hunter about, you know, what is CFC focused on um, and Chairman Yi, are they doing any deal or what kind of deals? And Hunter in a very long text message says, you know, we're willing to do any deals except I think he excluded, you know, military tech that would give the Chinese uh, military an advantage over the United States military. But outside of that, they were ready and willing to do any other deal. So you said they viewed Russia, and it's, it's clearly true that they do, as a bigger threat than China, and as someone who has worked around the world, you, you think that's ludicrous. But they were also willing to do business deals with Russia, correct? Um, they were. They were. And um, there's a very well-documented, um, you know, Senator Johnson and Senator Grassley. And sadly enough, it came out after the election, but they, um, you know, they initially uh, published a report in September 2020. Two weeks after the election in November 2020, they published a 70-page document that's publicly available to anybody that's watching this that wants to, 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 um, to review it that goes through in detail the involvement of Hunter Biden and the Biden family with knowledge of a deal that was being struck between CFC buying a $9 billion stake in the U.S.-sanctioned, Russian-controlled by Putin energy company, and writing a $9 billion check. They weren't a silent partner and, you know, we're going to put $9 million or $90 million or $900 million. They were buying a $9 billion stake, approximately 14% of Rosneft. Once again, U.S. sanctioned, Putin-controlled Russian energy company. And Hunter Biden and the Biden family were right in the middle of all of that. Have you had any contact with Hunter or Jim Biden? No, the last... <laughs> So the last contact I had with the Biden family is actually when I was in my interview with the uh, um, with the FBI on October 23rd for that five plus hours um, on my BlackBerry. Jim Biden called me via WhatsApp, and um, you know I was there voluntarily. But uh, so my phone starts ringing in the middle of this interview. So I looked down and I'm like, I'm like, is he really calling me right now? <laughs> so. I show the phone to my lawyer, and he's like, and then I show it to the agents. The agents got up out of their chair and left the room. 
They were like, uh, you can take that call if you want. And so I answered it, and there was nobody on the other side. So I don't know if it was a uh, mistake, or they were trying to send me a message, or uh, what it was. But that's the last uh, interaction or communication I've had with the Biden family. Now, so the one thing I noticed about that, Al Killer, is the a lot of bombshell stuff in there. But the anti-Russian stuff he got into in the middle. Rosneft is a Putin-controlled company, and I can't speak to that. I'd have to look it up, but I'm skeptical about that claim. I'll bet I'll find out that that's not the case. Did you notice that, Al Killer? Yes, I, I, I did. But uh, again, like the same way that everybody on the right uh, is a right-wing fascist is the same way that every company in Russia, Putin owns. That, that's all they mean. Yes. If, it, if it's a company I'm, that works for Russia... They that like it's not is not oligarch and is like for the Russian people. It's automatically Putin runs it, and he's the richest guy that ever lived. And you know the usual. So, I, I, again, but I don't think you can take. I, I think the gems in that. It, yeah, I, I don't ignore everything you said because of that. I'm just n- noting it and almost sticking a bookmark in it and saying I need to come back to that. Ask people like Marshall Boda. About Rosneft, what the deals on that? But I think the big thing there was he got a call from Jim Biden, and the agents left the room. That was outrageous. Al Killer, go ahead. That is out of a mafia movie. Okay, that that, that is like the that's like the head on the that's like the head on the uh, the of on the bed. When, when the director wakes up, that is, hey, we know you're here, and the guys you're talking to told us, not necessarily those agents, but I was told that you're talking to them about me, and I, I call you, and you don't, and I just hang up. It's like, hey, do you really want to do this? And there's also audio that came out on the on the on the laptop, or not on the laptop, on that Tony Bumblinski played, where the guy was like, oh, don't do this, you're gonna, you're, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna bury us. I think. You're going to bury us if you do this. So, and no, and th- this is something that I, re- this is why I think unity is so important, okay? Because Michael Savage, who is, he's the smartest guy that has ever been on radio. He, he He's the, the smartest person that's ever been on radio. And he said, where is the, where is the anti-war left? And he said, there never was an anti-war left. They were just anti-American. So now that they're in control, they're for the war, and that that's that's really what this. Is. And that's why these people don't care. That's why the New York Times is not going to say anything about the kill list because they agree with it. That that's what I I don't think people have the under. That's why I think unity is such a big issue, and that's why I brought up. Hey, Operation COINTELPRO, Pro. It was real. It was declassified. Ted Gunderson admitted to what. He participated in specifically against Martin Luther King Jr. and how he was so remorseful for being involved in it because he thought he was fighting communists. What they did to the black community, they are now, they, when you let it happen to them, now you are seeing what the, that, that organization, what people in that type of power can do. You're seeing it happen to the conservatives now. And I think that, I think the, ideological um, 
I think I think the ideological civil rights are a big issue that the Republicans are not touching for some reason because they really are violating people's civil rights where you can't bank, you can't eat in certain places, you can't get get Uber, you know, you can't get a job. People's lives are being turned upside down. We need unity now in this country because in God forbid there is a world war, the chaos that could possibly ensue as people need to know, hey, Whatever happened in the past, let's sweep that away. I want, if I have white privilege, I want you to have the exact same thing I have. If I think you're getting something because of affirmative action, I want everybody's on equal playing field going, going forward. We cannot be divided because that is how they've been That's Watch what they do to Europe. The way that they, div, they divide us in this country, they do it on a massive scale uh, around the world. And... But let me make this argument that what you're doing was just actually dividing people by saying something like the left has never been anti-war by making that sort of statement. A lot of people on the left who are anti-war are going to hear that and think this guy's not telling the truth about me personally. Do you see that? In fact, what you're saying is sort of dividing the people. Does that make sense, Al Keller? I'm not saying it's your goal, but I'm asking you to think about it. But you going after the left and defending Savage, in a sense, you're doing what you're saying people need to avoid doing, being split. What do you think, sir? I, I think anti-war transcends right or left. And I, what, I, what I meant by that, I'll clarify that, is that the people that were pretending, okay, um. Well, I'm going to criticize Bush, but I my mouth is shut with Obama. I'm going, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I'll criticize Reagan, but my mouth is shut with Clinton. That the the people that have the have the New York Times, the people that have the the uh, news channels, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, they're gone because they were just parroting what they were. I mean, th- there was a clip that came out over the weekend where it's everybody and their mother talking about disinformation, and they are literally reading the script word for word. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. By the way, Savage, do you have any doubt that he's a neocon? I'm going to say I'm the smartest person on radio, and that Savage is a big neocon dope. I'm going to be very explicit, with an irritating voice. So don't you see that Savage is a, a tool of the war machine, in fact? Name one war he's He's been in. He's been for outside of Afghanistan. Well, uh, he's clearly a Zionist, right? I, I would. I. I will. I'll give you that. But he criticizes Israel, and he criticized when they were shooting the Palestinians. I believe two years ago, um, when Trump um, moved the embassy, he said Trump shouldn't have moved the embassy, and he said that the shooting, the shooting of the Palestinians that were protesting it was like that's the last thing they need and i think he at the end of the end of his show on uh, new york because you know he went off of uh wabc which was the big new york show he had uh, just about had it with uh bb netanyahu al killer i gotta go because of time and it's 420 so i'm sure you gotta get high that's just a little joke for al killer but uh great call as usual al killer thanks so much great call by the way 202 521-1320, if you want to call and be part of the show. Rod, are you a Michael Savage fan? 
Um, I've only like listened to like clips, <clears throat> clips of him. So, but no, I don't follow him necessarily. I've seen him on Alex Jones before, but I don't follow him. Now, go ahead. Let's see. Say he's smarter than me, Rod. Go ahead. I dare you. <laughs> I double dog dare you. <laughs> I think it. No, I gotta say, I think he. I think I, I did hear him um, talk about uh, some science stuff. And I, I'm not saying he's. Uh, I don't know. He could just repeat it, be, uh, regurgitate some stuff. So, but he did. He did know what he was talking about in that sense. Yeah. And and by the way, I mean it about getting Taylor back on to talk about that COVID stuff because that's a big deal. I mentioned the CDC before. The news was trying to push a story that the CDC, which was before the pandemic, the CDC had an 80% approval rating. During the pandemic, it went down to 50%. And now what NPR is pushing is a story people like the CDC again because its its approval ratings are going up. But I don't think people... Like it, eighty percent. I don't believe. What do you, I don't what believe do you think, that. I don't, Rod? I don't believe yeah. that at all, Lee. And um, an, another thing, you know, these these headlines they fly under the radar, but uh, these new these flu shots that have come out uh, this year, they're they're mRNA. Uh, they haven't really been saying that to the people, but they've been uh, really pushing people to get this flu shot. I was watching uh, the NFL uh, Thursday, the Amazon. You know, it's on Amazon Prime, and they had a big commercial about getting a flu shot. So that's another thing. So, and a lot of jobs are mandating this flu shot, but they're not letting people know that this flu shot you're getting this year may be mRNA. And I, I know what you're talking about because uh, my girlfriend Danny is actually a football fan. She likes watching football. And I'll tell you something else about her. You may have seen these girls before, Rod. She's one of those people who really gets in the football game. So we have a big TV. She watches the game on NFL or on Amazon Prime. And she's one of those people who yells at the screen as though the players can hear her. Does it make sense, Rod? Right, right. So, so I've been catching some of the NFL stuff. And you're right. The messaging that they use the NFL for is very frightening. Good point. So let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. Malik in D.C., good friend of the show. What's on your mind? Uh, hi there, Lee. Yes, go ahead, Malik. All right, I've been having some uh, phone troubles lately. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I I've been trying to uh, call in. Uh, I guess I've been calling in too late uh, because I, um, I, I, I honestly really enjoyed uh, Putin's uh, speech. Uh, this past weekend, and and happened to uh, be in the presence of a um, a Bulgarian woman um, uh, who moved to the United States a few years ago. Uh, as I was listening to it, um, and and got to ask her opinion uh, a little bit of it, but uh, but I was I was surprised surprised by a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that I did love uh, about his speech is that he did mention. Um, you know, anti-colonial movements, and he did kind of allude to the to the uh, fact that he was aware of movements that uh, were highly critical here in the U.S. Uh, of uh, you know of uh, the uh, NATO uh, support of uh, Ukraine. Yes, I'd say that the theme of his speech was anti-colonialism. Would you agree with that, Mark? Uh, 
I, w I would say that uh, for a philosophical theme, not practical, because practically it was obviously these regions have joined Russia. These four regions are now part of Russia. But for a philosophical theme, I think it was about anti-colonialism. Now, say what, Malik? Do you agree with that? I and and. And you're, uh, you went out on my, my phone went out for a second, but I heard the gist of what you said there. I, I would say, and, I, and, I, and I'll admit, I haven't heard 100% of the speech. I, I'd like to go back and, and listen to the, the parts that I, that I missed. Um, I would say, um, and I, and I want to say that I, I believe that he may have alluded to um, the incident of the FBI raiding uh, the African People's Socialist Party. And uh, Chairman Amali uh, Yesutela's home in St. Louis. Is that um, I, I, okay? And, and them having connect, supposedly being accused of having a connection uh, to the Russian government and re and supposedly receiving funds from the Russian government. I, I'm pretty sure he's a, he's he's probably aware of that news story. Um, uh, but in terms of 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 the the theme of his speech being anti-colonial. Uh, what I got from that, and 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 again, I I'm under no illusions that um, that Putin is. I I wouldn't say that. Uh, unlike many folks on the left who um, champion Russia and champion China, I I I believe that you know a lot of them are operating under the idea, and not to say that that Putin is um, anti. Uh, you know, not uh, against um, anti-colonial movements or not in support of anti-colonial movements, but he's not Nikita Khrushchev, you know, and and nor is uh, Xi Jinping uh, Chairman Mao. And I think a lot of people right. on the left, they they push today's modern China and Russia um, as if those that those that's the case. And it's not. And, I just think that and he's not Lenin. And I made this point to Mark Sabara. He attacked colonialism, but did not tie it to capitalism. Did you, did you notice that part? I well, I I noticed that just because I've listened to Putin speak before, and and so I'm I would just say that I'm I'm not surprised with that. Now I I heard you guys talking about that the other day. Now I would I would disagree with that. We don't necessarily have to go into detail on that, and we could discuss that another time about colonials, colonialism's uh, connection to capitalism. Uh, but I did notice. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question, this Malik. While I've got you here, because I was thinking of this earlier, was the Roman Empire an example of imperialism? And if so, did it not come before capitalism? Thousands of years before capitalism. No, it, it, it's it's funny because I I've had that conversation with with friends before who, um, you know, who are uh, either I guess in support of capitalism or don't necessarily have any problems uh, with with capitalism, and and I would say that uh, without question, how can I mean how can you, um, how can you not include. Uh, the Roman Empire in in the examples of of empire. well because someone on Twitter did didn't they denied it so I'm just throwing that in but I agree with you go go ahead no and I, and I would say I mean if if you're looking at uh, British imperialism um, and uh, and obviously U.S. imperialism 
Uh, these are these are countries. I mean, you walk around D.C. I mean, if even for someone who doesn't, you know, is not politically educated and and doesn't read history at all, how could you not see the connections between uh, Rome and and the U.S. and and if you I've been to, I've been to England and and obviously I'm aware of their politics. How can you not? Uh, say that there's 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 no connection when these these countries model themselves and and often uh, within their politics uh, speak quite often of Rome. Right, that's a good point. And the buildings in D.C. are obviously influenced by Roman and Greek architecture all over the place. So Malik, we got to go because Mark Frost is on the line. A great call, and let's pick up that topic of imperialism's connection to capitalism some other time. Now let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by entrepreneur, educator, economist, and prog rock drummer, Mark Frost, on The Backstory. backstory and we're on the radio in the capital of the empire of lies washington dc 105.5 fm am 1390 on the backstory joining us now great friend of the show entrepreneur eagle scout educator economist and prog rock drummer mark frost how you doing mark I'm doing quite well just got done with a practice and I feel all ready to talk on the radio so let me tell you well, that's great. I was practicing a little yesterday because I actually think, and I'm I'm curious, you're not a medical expert, but you might as well be. Do you think that is a good move for recovery from my stroke to play drums? Because I think it's actually helpful to me. I've noticed I'm not as coordinated as I was before the stroke, and I wasn't that coordinated before the stroke. But afterwards, I'm thinking that practicing drums could actually be helpful to my neurological health. What do you think, Mark? Uh, yeah, as you said, I'm an economist, not a physician, uh, as far as my training goes. But I do read a lot. Some people get up in the morning and just read the funny papers, and I read read academic journals. And I do know that people that have had strokes, that there's been significant that there's been research that's that showed a significant correlation between. Uh, doing uh, uh, coordinated tasks and their improvement. Because what drumming does is it sends signals. Your brain has to tell your arms and feet and fingers and all that what to do. And what a stroke does yes. is it is it interferes with those synaptic responses. And so it seems to me, assuming your heart can take it, assuming the physician has said, okay, your heart can take a little bit of activity, I would argue, you know, you don't want to play Metallica, but I would argue that a half hour to an hour a day on the drums not only is permissible, but it's required. And if it's not the drums, and, it's know, some I, other it, – it's like putting puzzles together or something, something to engage your mind and your body. I think that's pretty well documented in the academic – in the medical journals. I mean, talk to someone with expertise in that if you want to know you know, more information, but that's my understanding of stroke victims. I don't play hard enough where it's going to be a threat of a heart attack or anything. 
you know, so, uh, and I play the electronic set and at home, which means you can only hit it so hard, if that makes sense. But Mark, I had another question about prog rock for you. We're yes. talking about Roger Waters, who's on a kill list. And where uh, do you fit yes. Pink Floyd? How do you fit Pink Floyd in? Because here's what I'll say. Obviously, in a sense, they're one of the founders of prog rock. But in the period that I like prog rock, the early 70s, I thought they become poppy. I think the Wall album, for instance, are pop songs. And there's not a lot of use of complex time signatures or complex instrumental stuff that I associate with prog rock. So where do you put Pink Floyd in the pamphlet of prog rock bands, Mark Frost? They're definitely a prog rock band, and they're one of the pioneers of prog rock. And there and there's been basically two Pink Floyds. There's the original Pink Floyd of the Sid Barrett era. People forget it wasn't David Gilmore yes. and it wasn't Roger Waters who was the leader of that band. It was Sid Barrett who went literally nuts. I mean, I don't think any other. He went crazy. And uh, yes. in fact, "Wish You Were Here" uh, album, "Shine On You Crazy Diamond," is about him. Uh, what yes. makes prog rock exactly to me? Right is keyboards you need some sort of a keyboard sound now there's exceptions rush kind of blew that to pieces so getty would play keyboards now and then but generally speaking prog rock comes from there's some keyboards synthesizers that sort of a thing it's a mix between classical rock blues folk that you know that type of thing uh i disagree with you and i rarely disagree actually uh certainly on musical stuff but i disagree about uh, Pink Floyd in the Wall. Although I, I prefer, in terms of the time signatures and the prog rock part of it, I actually prefer their earlier stuff. But uh, I would not call the Wall a pop album. I mean, uh, it. I think I paid to see it at the theater, if I remember correctly, probably twenty times. I flipped out on it. I mean, I remember every lyric in the song. I mean, I don't know how you can call this a prog rock song, but, uh, you know, day after day, love turns gray like the skin on the dying hyena. And night after night, we pretend it's all right, but I have grown older and you have grown colder and nothing is very much fun anymore. Uh, hardly a pop song. <laughs> well, only in the sense of employing traditional pop song structure. And, you right. know, it's... It, do you know who produced the Wall album off the top of your head, Mark? The which one? The Wall. Who produced oh, yes. it? Oh yeah. Uh, uh, hold Bob on. Escher. Oh, I, I Bob thought Escher. it was. Okay. Okay. I think I think I'm right. And Bob Ezrin was a big producer in the '70s, and he produced also a number of Alice Cooper albums. And if you listen to production on the Wall. It's a lot of things he used on Alice Cooper albums before. For instance, on the Alice Cooper album, From the Inside, he had a children's chorus sing on that album. And the children's chorus, of course, sang on another brick in the wall. So it's fa fascinating if you listen to Bob Ezrin production techniques. And that's all I mean by pop is... Not traditional love song pop, but traditional song structures. Mark, do you agree with that? Four, four times, four four times, and things like that. Right. 
yeah, I, I see what you mean. I mean, you courses. could not compare. But another thing that makes a prog rock band is they don't just write songs. They generally write stories. So their album releases are concepts. They're, they're, they're more than just a collection of songs. There's a story no, that right. is interconnected and yes. being told. Uh, you know, that sort of a thing. And clearly that's true about the wall. Clearly, that's a big story. So good point. So, Mark, let's let's move from the prog rock stuff to the economy. What do you think is the state of the world economy and how significant uh, are the sanctions against Russia failing? They've hurt Europe and they've hurt, as we're seeing now, and also Talk about this move by the Saudis to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. How big a move is that going to be? Worldwide economy. Mark Cross, what say you? Uh, I'm going to quote your son who taught me. He quoted somebody, and I've always, it always stuck with me. And he said something. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something. Because I usually think government leaders are smart. They just made a mistake. But he had a quote that said something like, never ascribe... To, to, in, to never ascribe to luck what can be ascribed to uh, uh, incompetence and stupidity or something like that. And this administration's policy from an economic perspective is just insane. Let's just say I agree with, with, with the government's policy on the Russia-Ukraine war. Let's say I agree with that. Okay, then if I, and I'm president of the United States. Well, if I agree with that and I'm president of the United States, I want to drive the price of oil down as low as I can possibly get it, and that starves the Russian government of resources to wage war. This administration did the exact opposite. They have driven the price of oil way up. They sold the strategic reserve at whatever it was, $23 a barrel, and they're going to have to refill it at 80 to 90 to 100. Uh, they've made a mess, and now it's not just a mess in the United States. You know, there's an old expression in international economics, international political economy, when the United States sneezes, the world catches a cold. And it's true. The world is so dollarized and everything is so dollarized. When the dollar escalates like it has, uh, everything American becomes more expensive. Uh, foreign companies that operate here uh, get paid in dollars. So they tend to do better. So part of their profit is foreign exchange gains, not really making a good car or a bad car. They just did some good currency exchange. And we've created a situation in the world where in the biggest irony uh, that exists, if you, uh, for those that don't know what a standard deviation is, it's just a measure of volatility. And if you look at the standard deviation of the currency prices over, say, the last year, the most stable currency there is is the ruble. <laughs> I mean, uh, that'd be one of those things to go, you know, bet on to win, you know, drinks at a bar or something on. Uh, but it's true. And uh, what I'm worried about bet right for now. Vodka shot. If I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna make a suggestion. <laughs> if you do it, bet for vodka shot. Go ahead, Mark. I'm more of a gin guy, which, and I'm told that's the worst alcohol to drink. So. Uh, and very okay. You know, the, the whole world is talking about the Bank of England right now, uh, and it's silly. It's, it's a footnote, meaning nothing other than 
the complexity of monetary policy and why the Bank of England has multiple constituents to serve, and it wants to raise rates and lower them at the same time, which is impossible. It wants to to increase employment without fighting inflation, which is impossible. And what you have with the Bank of England is just a reaction. It's not a symptom. It's not a leading indicator. What has me uh, really jazzed up in terms of, of worry as well as just how did they get to this mess is what's going on in Turkey. Uh, I've been pretty good on this show and fault lines of bringing up new topics that end up on the mainstream news two weeks later. And I promise you, Turkey, Turkey might even have a coup. That's how bad it's become. By the end of this year, the, the inflation for 2022 in Turkey will exceed 100%. 100%. And you're saying 100% is big. Yeah, when you consider that, and that's the official inflation rate. That doesn't, that's not saying, well, if you're low income, it's actually a lot more than that. So just like our official rate is, what is it, 9%? And their official rate right now is about 84%, and the year's not over. So it looks like they're going, prices are basically going to double in one year there. Uh, and it's because they can't stop quantitative easing. They're still uh, injecting liquidity into banks, and they're still stimulating the economy, which is why the uh, Turkish lira has dived, and uh, you know it's just tanked against the dollar. Actually, all the currencies have tanked against the dollar, because everybody's gone to quality. And what that has done is it's driving interest rates up uh, at, in the United States. And so we are in part paying higher interest rates for our mortgages, for our cars, for motorcycles, for our purchases, in part, so we can have a green economy and so we can be tough with the Russians. Uh, there's something wrong with that. Uh, so what's the state of the economy of the world? I think it's a mess right now. It's volatile. Anyone that really knows what they're talking about won't give you hard pre short-term predictions because it's too volatile. Uh, the only people that are going to give you short-term predictions are the ideologues and the talking heads on TV. But people that actually know what they're talking about, there's too much uncertainty right now. And markets hate uncertainty. What I suspect is going to happen is there's going to be a complete crash of the United States stock market. Uh, and when I say crash, I'm not talking about 1,000 points. I'm talking about three or four or 5,000 points within a few days. Uh, I'm talking about a major crash because... On average, the stock market is way overvalued. Uh, just most things are just overvalued. And at, at some point, uh, a bubble has to burst. Uh, so we have Europe, which is in a mess. We have Italy, which is imploding. We have Turkey, which, if history teaches us anything, is inflation causes governments to, to fall. When, when people's money, when their life savings... In Zimbabwe, when a, when a person's life savings almost overnight, within a few months, was worthless. I mean, if you had $100,000 of Zimbabwe dollars uh, six months after the hyperinflation started, that 100000 Zimbabwe dollars that was worth, let's say, 100000 U.S. dollars is worth probably $5 <laughs> by that. And it, it just destroys the middle class. And... When you destroy the middle class, you don't have a functioning economy. You have either an oligarchy 
you have serfdom, you have fascism, you have some form of something besides, you know, besides a republic. Uh, generally, a, a, a committee is running the country rather than the unseen hand of Adam Smith and all that kind of stuff. And what concerns me is I, my big prediction is we're going to actually have a dollar, a giant dollar crash sometime early in 2023. And it's because the dollar has skyrocketed up so fast, so high, and like a, and like a slinky or a, you know, or a pendulum. When it goes too far on the other side, it also has to go too far on the other way. And so uh, no. I think so. The stock market's going to crash. The bond market is booming, and both demand and costs and prices are going up. I was just at the store today grocery shopping. And in a small little, maybe four inch by six inch little plastic container, there was five little spears of watermelon. They wanted $6 for it at Target. Wow. $6 for some watermelon wow. that had been, it was it, one year ago, it was 50 cents worth of watermelon. Yeah. And, and people are asking themselves this question. And this is what I'm trying to get my students to grasp is how important is this to you? Obviously, if this was Texas, would be really, it'd be really important to us. But what I suspect is even in a lot of Europe, Ukraine isn't that important. And I'm not making judgment about, the, uh, about which side is right and which side is wrong. I'm just looking at it pragmatically and seeing how it's likely to end up. And, uh, well, Mark, did you pay much? And the war's getting blamed for everything. It, it drives me crazy. Did Sorry. You, did you pay much attention to Putin's recent speech? Uh, yes, I did. Okay, I thought it was significant, and let me explain why. For people listening who are on the left, you will not understand this, but understand that Mark and I, as Mark, you're quasi libertarian, right? A libertarian. Yeah, I, That's I'm a libertarian, but I'm not a anarcho-capitalist libertarian. I, I I believe government Correct. is good. I believe you need government, I, and and you need good government. I just don't like bloated government. And right, you're in favor of small government. So, as a person who's libertarian-ish, do, do you? I'm going to name two concepts, and do you tie them together in your mind? Colonialism and capitalism. Because I know when I think about it, I don't view colonialism as an example of the capitalism that I talk about when I say capitalism. Mark, how do you feel? Well, it depends on what form of colonialism. So, for instance, I published a paper. It was a fixed effects paper. And I, what was the title of it? It was uh, a fixed effect analysis of European countries and colonial growth rates, of something like that forgot the title of my own paper. But anyway, I measured who did better in the world, which colonies did better. And guess what? If you happen to have been so if if you happen to have been so lucky to have had ancestors that were exploded by the British, if you were born into a British colony, your your expectation at birth was ten times the welfare, the income, the the quality of life than say a Spanish colonist would enjoy because the Spaniards and so 
and the so, Spaniards so, and Mark, the French and the uh, yeah. Let me stop you. Are you suggesting? Because I don't think you are. That it was because of colonization or because of the relative aspects of capitalism in that society. Does that make sense? Yes. Why did they do better? In other words, I would say it was because of more freedom and more liberty and less government involvement, even though there was some fundamental colonist aspect. Do you see what I'm saying, Mark? Yeah, and and that is probably true to a degree, but I think the lion's share of it, uh, you know, comes from a different source on, on that particular uh, side of it. I just don't see how that can explain all of it. Yeah, no, these things are complex, but uh, I, I think Putin, by identifying the problem, I think what we're seeing worldwide is a collapse of the colony system which has been really dead societally for about 100 years, but it's held on to some extent by the British and by their probably the, the U.S. And what we're seeing is eventually people don't like to be told what to do. People like, fundamentally, people everywhere like freedom and self-determination. Yeah, nobody That's likes to be take. told what to do with an attitude. Nobody. So I agree with that. Yes. And that's where I think this system has failed, because the U.S. thinking, even Trump, I'm not a Trump hater, but even Trump thought it was okay to deal with Russia and Germany and tell them, we're going to issue sanctions on you to stop Nord Stream 2. I think the U.S. should have butted out of that entirely. Oh, I agree. Mark, I agree. You, I think we should yeah, have butted out of the I think we should have butted out of the entire thing, because I'm an economist. I operate in a game theoretic model. If I'm negotiating a treaty with another country, I should be interested in what's in the best interest of my country. The person across the table is interested in what's best for their country. And when you come together, you come to a deal that's mutually beneficial for both. And that's something that I think is lost just in the analysis that we have on these things uh, today. Because uh, what, what Putin was actually saying in his speech, is a consistent message that the Russians have been making. I'm going to argue since 1990. Uh, they were assured, uh, you know, the wall came down, we're going to have a peace dividend, we hugged, everybody loves each other, uh, no more Cold War, we're all going to be buddies and hang out with each other now. And uh, all they needed, to, and we sent our ridiculous neocon economists over there, and they're like, okay, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. And they didn't know what they were doing, and they gave them bad advice. Uh, and then they were assured that NATO, whether it stayed or not, was something of an anachronism now, because there's no more Cold War, and that NATO would not be expanding and certainly would not be expanding eastward. Well, that turned out to be a lie. Now, a person can argue that Putin is paranoid. Of course, the West would never attack the Soviet Union, right? And of course, the West would never attack Russia. It just couldn't happen, wouldn't happen. The West is, are just too nice of people. Well, it happened twice in one century, and that's ingrained in the Russian zeitgeist. It just is. Uh, you know, we lost, what, a half a million people in World War II? Russians, I don't know how many Russians lost, because I don't even think the Russians know. But it, it's in the tens of millions. Uh, there's so many unaccounted for. I mean, 
It was the numbers million I've people or something. To, I've heard 18 to 20 million. Oh, I thought it was like 50 million or something. But uh, but regardless, my point is, uh, a lot. they lost a lot of people. Uh, and and, and I'll, I'll use this moment to change hats uh, from economists to my middle, World War II. Uh, I'm probably an expert in World War II history. Uh, I'm fascinated by it because it has so much economics in it. But every war, and I've studied Russia's history pretty strong, every war they've ever had, literally every one recorded, has started off really bad. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't gone smooth. People forget World War II, the, the Nazis just ran into, ran over Ukraine, ran over Western Russia. I mean, they just blitzrigged it out. But they figured their stuff Operation out. Operation Barbarossa, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. August 1st, 1939. And, uh, excuse me, September 1st. And, you know, people don't understand. If you don't understand the history and the culture of a country and its geography, you will not understand their values. And if you can't understand their values, you will not be able to negotiate with them either in a good faith across the table or in nuclear brinksmanship. Because and I'll just let me let me just say this, Mark. Sure. The thing I thought that was significant about his speech is a lot of times when I hear people criticize colonialism and Putin criticize colonialism all throughout this speech. The next thing they do is go to criticizing capitalism. And that's why I thought it was significant. At no point yes. did Putin criticize capitalism. Does that make any sense, Mark? Yeah, because uh, Russia is a capitalist country. It, it drives people crazy when I say that, but they're a capitalist country. They have a stock market. They have, uh, they have commodity markets. They have private uh, ownership. Now, you could argue, well, it's not American capitalism. Well, neither is British capitalism. Neither is, you know, French capitalism. Right. It's, uh, yes. But it is capitalism, and it's based on property rights and the rule of law. Now, Russia, culturally, this is what people don't grasp. Culturally, Russia is a more conservative country than the United States or just about any place that I've ever been. They're a conservative kind. By conservative, I don't mean politically necessarily. I mean, most people respect religious institutions. Most people believe what, there's there's what, what there's something to, to value in the past. A, you mean they have a conservative temperament? Is that yes, fair to exactly. say, Mark? Yes, exactly. They tend to save. They're very interested in their children. You know, they're uh, so. In in fact. I would argue if there's any big, when there's big, I would argue that Russians and Americans are actually quite a lot alike. The difference is Americans emerged from British rule and, you know, Russians emerged from Soviet rule and even from Soviet rule, czarist rule. And that creates a different culture. It creates different experiences among the people. It, it creates different uh uh, types of goals and aspirations, it, it creates a different civilization. It just does. But I find a lot of similarity between Russians and Americans. Uh, I noticed it no, when I... I, too. I mean, I a lot too. of similarity. We're, so we're, we're all... Go, Mark, we're out of time. Oh, sorry. This okay. has been a great... 
It's been a great conversation, as usual, with the great Mark Frost. I really enjoyed it, Mark. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, on Lee. The Love you. Bye-bye. And thanks to everyone. Also, Taylor Hudak in Hungary and our whole crew here. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Backstory.